You are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Oh god. Is that time, Marco? Wait a minute. What are you talking about? Look at oh, the calendar. Holy Look. shit. Oh god, no. Wait. No, we're we're almost we're almost halfway through. It's we're near the Ides of March. Oh, straight to I, them. I feel like something's coming up. Something that's going to It's the suck death your life away. Dump of DVDs. Well, because nobody watches movies in March. That's no crazy. One. No one. Why would they? Why? You know what? You know what's going to make this easier? I know what? Beer. Always. Richard. I'm Marco. And we are back again. Thank you, as always, for tuning in to Digital Noise, uh, one of the podcasts that is part of the oneofus.net network. Um, we do really appreciate you listening uh, because uh, we have our opinions <laughs> and we feel foolish just spouting them to the empty internet. Um, so Because then we're just the other guy on the bus. Yeah, I mean, we, why would just, we want to be that guy? I'm always that guy. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, please remember you can be, uh, become... Uh, a, a sponsor of one of us. You can you can join up, and it gives you access to uh, additional stuff on the forums, uh, exclusive content like the weekly breakfast pub new, uh, news uh, podcast, um, exclusive. Um, uh, uh, what what was the word I'm looking for? Things, things. stuff, and things. It's late, stuff and it's and uh, we're in Austin, and therefore it's almost South by. Uh, South by Southwest is the thing that eats our souls for a week, uh, so we are heading straight into that direction. I am blissfully free of such uh, obligations. You fool! But you. I know that many of our crew are going to be uh, up to their eyeballs and yeah, so keep, all sorts of things. Keep listening because elsewhere on the site we will be having coverage of South by Southwest. But as I was saying, uh, you can become uh, a member of the uh, the One of Us Nation. Uh, 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 member levels start really low and give you access to a lot of stuff, but go right up, th- right up to uh, you know, really generously backing us, which we really do appreciate. Absolutely. Uh, also remember, this is a review show, so one of the important things is we want you to be able to get hold of the titles we're talking about. So every film we talk about, uh, if you scroll down on the site, beneath where the podcast is playing, you can see links. These take you to the Amazon page. You can click on those links. It will take you straight there. You can buy the discs we're talking about. Or, here's the great thing. Whenever you buy one of those discs, we get a little cut of it from Amazon, which helps keep the entire network afloat. So, you know, I mean, if you're listening to, say, um, you know, The Extraordinary Gentleman, uh, or Rage Select, uh, or, or We Are Error, or anything else on the site, this helps them pay, it helps us pay for those kind of podcasts as well. But it doesn't have to be these films. Anything Absolutely. you buy at Amazon on that trip. We are merely the gateway. Yeah. As long as you to click a whole on shopping that, experience. As long as you click on a title and go and buy something on that trip, we get a kickback from whatever you buy. And we promise we won't judge whatever you buy. We well doesn't matter. A little bit. You could get an Adam Sandler box set, you could buy strange little toys that come from other countries. We're not going to judge you, so long as we get that little cut. No, Adam Sandler box set we would judge. Okay, but never that, never vocally in public. If Just little behind Nicky is, closed if doors. If Little Nicky is on the cover, we, we, we judge. But that guy bought ten copies. No, fair enough. We get uh, a cut of all that. Literally, on one occasion, somebody bought a fridge. Yeah. And uh, we suddenly got, you know, uh, a, a few shekels from uh, from 
the sale of that fridge, and we're, we're very grateful. So, anyway, you know what? That's the housekeeping out of the way. Indeed. Uh, you know, so it's time for... The, the reviews. reviews. And you know what? We're going to kick off with actually, like, you know... We joked in the intro about March be February and March kind of being the death uh, the death time. Well, the thing is, like, it used to be the joke in theatrical releases, but actually, mm-hmm. February was really good this yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, every year it gets a little better. Yeah, the, well, this year, you know, just having Logan alone puts February. Sure, Logan, you know, who would have seen that? Logan was fabulous. You know, so we, we actually had that's a good a May, March. That's a March film. That's a May film. That's get a out. summer movie. You know, get out. Get out as well. We actually had a, people have seen the opportunities in in uh, in, Mar- in February and March, but. Yeah, it's still a little bit of an erratic season. Uh, you're still getting what you're getting is some post Christmas stuff coming out, and a, a lot of stuff. Is the best way to describe it. So the first piece of stuff, which is actually really, you know, at the end of the day, classic cinema, uh, is uh, our good friends over at uh, Arrow Releasing have done a new uh, edition of Cinema Paradiso, indeed. Um, which is like, huh, that's a an interesting one, but it, 89 Oscar winner. But you know they are. Uh, you know this is part of their whole uh, Arrow Academy. They're kind of expanding into more art house stuff. Yeah. Uh, and this edition actually includes uh, both the original theatrical cut and the the longer. Uh, we will discuss whether that is a good thing or not. Yeah. <laughs> Direct, About fifty minutes longer. Director's cut uh, of of the the Italian. Uh, yeah, it is a classic. It is a classic. It's a beloved classic. Cinema Paradiso. And you know what? I'm so I'd glad you could that. do the pronunciation. Cinema Paradiso. I cannot. No, this, you know, it's rare that we do this right off the bat, but for once, the very first film in the stack is going to be my pick of the week. Yeah, and I'm not, of- I'm not saying that Cinema Paradiso is the best movie ever made. Hell, it's not even the best movie in this stack, arguably. But... For my own personal reasons, this had a big impact on me when I was 16 years old and falling in love with art house cinema for the first time. And, you know, a story about a young boy who dreams of being a filmmaker and falls in love with the movies and a movie that is all about cinephilia. I mean, it was catnip for me. Yeah. Then about, uh, and I was 16, so it was about uh, 27, 28 when the director's cut came out. And I kind of felt betrayed a little bit by it because it's such a different beast. You know, about three quarters of the first, the beginning is more or less the same movie. And it's basically an almost hour long epilogue that was cut from the original. And you realize. With good reason. With it good adds reason. Nothing. Well, the thing is, it adds a, a much more sadder, somber note. There's a, there's another storyline that's happening that we weren't privy to. And it involves the betrayal of a beloved character. And I remember walking out of there being, there's a big difference between t- being 28 years old and being 16 years old. And the problem with for me was, I said, ah, that's okay. I didn't care for this new cut, but I still have the original. So I went back and looked at the original, and you know what? I felt like it hadn't quite lived up to my memory of it. Yeah. And that's just part of growing older. And now, watching these movies again for the first time in years, at the age of about 43, suddenly I thought, okay, I like them again. So... I've come to the conclusion that this is a movie that I'm probably just going to grow with over time, and at different points in my life, it's going to be vital and heartwarming and inspirational. And at other times, I'm going to view it as just cynical and saccharine and not worth your time. For that alone, it makes it an interesting movie, in that I can see it at different points in my life and experience it differently. Your mileage may vary, though. I mean, it's it's kind of a... a 
fascinating one because you know this is it's very odd because you you would might you want to think oh well this feels like it's something very autobiographical by mm-hmm. uh, by the director uh Giuseppe Tontore yeah. but this is set during World War Two, and it's like at the beginning of World yeah. War Two, and, and it's but the story is you know it's it's a very simple one of you know kid grows up with you know wanting to be wanting to see films and this like some you know major strands about Catholic repression and you know the role of the church in in creating orthodoxy in this long this this beautiful the, for me the 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 sweetest subplot because this the the line between sweet and twee in this. It's I think fun. is what has aged uh, yeah. worse. But then the eighties were very odd. The eighties you could get away with twee really easily. Um, I mean, this is yeah. There's a reason this was an Oscar winner. This is a this is a film that celebrates film. Yes, it has some very wonderful cinephiliac moments in there. Um, the whole subplot of the local priest forcing them to oh, cut that's great. the yeah. the, uh, the the all the kissing all scenes the and how that and, pays off in the yeah, end. which which is the, I mean, there's, it, this is a film about a guy who makes makes a mistake when he's younger and it comes back to haunt him. But it, it's also the mistake is what guides his life. Right. Uh, you know, the director's cut also alters how you view that mistake drastically, which is a mistake. I you know, don't think that actually improves the film at all. I think it's actually a big mistake. I, I, I'm, I'm still debating which is the better film, frankly. I know which one I prefer. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just me being like, oh, that's not the way I remember it. Uh, but you know what? I think you can... Even Tornatori himself is a bit ambiguous about this. He, he's, he hasn't come down on either side. Typically, directors defend their director's cuts. But he says he's quite happy with both cuts and that they're both valid experiences. It just took me 20 years to be able to appreciate them as two unique experiences rather than having one sour my memory of the other. Yeah, I mean, they are, they are very different films and very different stories, and they're kind of, there's almost a, a you know, a, a film school experiment uh, yes, to be it, done of that, like, we, you know, well, what happens yeah. if you put these components in? How much does it change something else? And this is, you know, this is a nice transfer. It is a little bit of a self-indulgent transfer. Sure. Because they work from not the original release print, but the later one go, which actually at the beginning says, look at all these awards we won, which I'm yeah. like, that's a little bit self-indulgent. I, I didn't need that, and I think that was a... I think that, I, that might have been like a carryover, though, from the original theatrical print, because I seem to recall that was also on the old VHS tapes, because, of course, it played in Europe. Well, the director's cut, I don't want to take too much time on this, there's like three or four cuts of this movie. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it wasn't doing very well. It gets picked up by Miramax. It's won some awards, but it was sort of financially not very good. And this is one of the good. things that built Miramax's reputation. It absolutely like, this is, this did. Is the backbone of... Uh, yeah. It was one of their first big hits. And, you know, part of the... It also kind of started the uh, Harvey Weinstein's reputation as being a guy who's going to come in and cut your film for better or worse. So the argument could be made that, you know, well, you should never... You know, the director's always right. It just goes without saying. You should never touch his film. Well, guess what? Harvey cuts an hour out of this movie, although Tornatori insists he himself did the the cutting. But either way, you get an hour out of the movie, suddenly you're a box office bonanza and an Oscar winner to boot. And most people seem to think the original cut is superior to Tornatori's director's cut. So for cinema lovers, that kind of puts us in that weird space of like, well... You know, I want to say the artist is always right, but maybe they aren't. Yeah. So I mean, this it's is, worth viewing just to make that decision is, for yourself. This is a, a, a 
kind of epoch-defining film. This is one of the yeah. pivotal films of the eighties. I think yeah. it's important to see. Um, I you know I don't know I I just have a difficult time connecting with it because I do feel it's it is so twee. Absolutely, and the, the, uh, the love interest is so poorly written. Sure, she she is, is she's barely two-dimensional. The thing um, is, the director's cut. You know, uh, not much of a spoiler here. I'm sorry. It's a almost 20, 30-year-old movie now. But, you know, they bring that character back. And we expand on it a little bit more. So there are certain things that the director's cut kind of helps fill in. But it forces you to watch the movie through a slightly different lens. And it kind of takes... It kind of makes some of that gauzy nostalgia feel a little more treacly. But on the other hand, it has a more bitter edge at the end of it. So I'm still trying to decide. But like I said, I can now watch these as two separate experiences and appreciate them both. And if you haven't seen either of these films, I know, myself included, when I get a double disc set like this, my first instinct is to pop in the director's cut. But if you're coming to this movie for the first time, I highly recommend that you watch the original 1989 screening and then watch the director's cut and see how you feel about it then. Very different uh, childlike oh, coming of age story. In, you know, once in a while, you get a film that comes across your desk and you just go, this is doing something different and it's trying to hit a specific tone. And it does it really, really well. And I, I will say, you know, I will say, you know, A Monster Calls does mm-hmm. that wonderfully. I think that was one of the most underrated films of the last six months. Uh, and I do recommend people see it. And then you see a film that is trying for something unique and unusual and specific and whiffs so badly. <laughs> Just whiffles yeah. that you end up with the lovely bones, which is weird <laughs> because this is basically what this is: is the ninth life of Louis Drax, yeah. um, which is one of the weirdest films I have seen in forever. The basic story is that Louis Drax is this young kid who, you know, always bad things always happen to highly him. accident prone, yeah. and it starts off as kind of like a weird riff on a series of uh, of um, uh, oh the. Um, yeah, series of, of uh, unfortunate, unfortunate events. <laughs> but basically, things uh, you know, he he's died eight times yeah. since he was born. Bad things just keep happening to this kid, and then then he's pretty much dead uh, you until know, he's not. Until he's not, that he falls off a cliff, and his he's taken into hospital. Uh, his mother, played by Sarah Gadon, is you know desperate to look after him, and is convinced that his ne'er do well father, played by Aaron Paul. Um, actually, conveniently skipped town right yeah, after who, this event. That he'd actually thrown Louis off the cliff, uh, and that the uh, the uh, kind of lantern jawed and, and easily distracted doctor, uh, played by Jamie uh, Jamie Dornan, uh, a man who probably just should just keep looking confused. Um, you know, he's trying to work out exactly what happened. And you know, he's, he's supposed to be smart because we're introduced to him giving a TED. T- Talk. A TED talk about oh, the afterlife and comas and what does it mean to be dead? And you think, oh, they're going to go into all this sort of metaphysical shit. No, no. they don't. They uh, want, they think they are, but they don't. And this is all before the sea monster pops up. Oh yeah. And the thing is that this is one of these films where I mean, like the Lovely Bones, it thinks it's being uh, intriguing and edgy, and it's just clumsy. 
Yeah. This is, you know, it's I, based on a novel, and I, I don't want to say anything bad about the novel, because I haven't read it. Perhaps this stuff works better on the page. But in terms of this adaptation, there are so many different strands and elements competing for attention that it never really comes together. And for me, the big problem, especially in, say, the final quarter, where it becomes something of a locked-door mystery... It, it kind of explains away some of what we've seen. It's a mystery. We go, oh, now we know why these things were happening. But in order for that mystery to be solved, a number of frankly supernatural things had to occur. And to me, that just violates the whole premise of the movie. You'll have yourself wondering, is this in Louis's head? Is it in the mother's head? Who's really responsible? Who's the father? Is there an afterlife? And you realize it doesn't care. It doesn't matter because the filmmakers haven't really thought it through. Here's the problem. Here's the real problem I had <clears throat> was that it is that when you work out what's going on, and there is kind of a mystery that you don't. It tries to hide the fact there's a mystery for a while, and mm-hmm. then it goes, "Oh, there's a mystery," and you're like, "So I sat through all this for uh, for you to go, oh, there is a mystery after all, rather than just like there's a it lot out. of red herrings so, in this." Yeah, uh, so it, so the actual core mystery isn't actually like pointed to even until you're over halfway through by which point I've worked out what was going on so at that point I'm like you're all idiots you're all (laughs) complete morons Um, and it actually makes a couple of the characters deeply unlikable in fact uh, which is very problematic nobody in this movie comes out well no well, apart from Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul and Who's maybe sh- Oliver Platt a oh, little Oliver, bit. Oliver Platt as the child psychologist is kind of wonderful. He, he, he was, does have fun with He it. was the redeeming feature because I'm like, Oliver Platt just going, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to come in and have fun with my lines and just bounce off. This kid is not, not a bad actor. No, uh, not at all. What's, what's but, weird and disappointing... character is written weird. Yeah. What's weird and disappointing about this is this was directed by Alejandro uh, Aja, yeah. who directed Hope Tension, which this is probably most like Hope Tension in a lot of ways, because the plot doesn't make a look of sense, and it's actually you get to the end, and you're like, that, that couldn't work. This is stupid. This is almost like, imagine... But him coming straight off Horns, which is fantastic, yeah. and if you haven't seen, I do recommend yeah. watching Horns. You're going to look at this and go, what the hell went wrong? To me, this is like watching something like, like, say, Hitchcock, when he's doing... And I think there's a very Hitchcockian element, even in the way the mother is dressed. Oh, yeah. She has this sort of ice-blonde look. But the thing is, if you watch something like The Birds or Vertigo, after a while you, you go, wow, that's a great movie. And the more you think about it, the more you realize how little sense it makes. Uh, what Hitchcock referred to as the refrigerator moment when you're going to the fridge in the middle of the night and suddenly you go, wait a minute, how did that happen? The problem is Hitchcock knew he succeeded if you realize that hours later. I was having that experience the whole time I was watching this movie. Very very disappointing. Doesn't know what it wants to be. Yeah. It has these supernatural elements, much like uh, The Lovely Bones, which, I, you know, if it's flawed in the same way as The Lovely Bones. Sure. It's so caught up in what it what it's, its MacGuffin is, it forgets to tell a good story. And, and it's honest, convinced of its profoundness. Yeah, and honestly, if you're going to watch something which is a meditation on how children deal with death, which is Louis' constant thing, he's very morbid, that you get... 
you, you, honestly, go watch A Monster Calls instead, because it's a way better film, uh, and much yeah. more tender and sweet. The best thing about Louis Drax, I'll say in conclusion, is that it is the best stealthy endorsement of the Canadian healthcare program. Oh, yeah. Because I kept thinking, you know, why is Louis' mom always so well-dressed, and they have a nice house, and he's been in the hospital every other day with major life all day? Oh, because they have free socialized healthcare. Universal, universal healthcare. She'd be living under it a is, bridge in America. It is literally the only way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I just did not work. Didn't, no. And that's the thing. It's one of these things where if you if you're a little bit off, you plummet straight off the cliff. Which, no, but there you get a pun intended. They they plummeted off the cliff right at the beginning. Maybe yep. that was Asia's and you know never metaphor. Stopped. Never stopped. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Like now we're on a third coming at the key, you know young boy coming of age. It's the coming of age special today. Well, I've got to rock through these. Uh, this is London Town. Um, which is okay. I'll I'll be blunt. Uh, this is a cheap punk, um, almost famous. This is fair enough. Film absolutely uh, plays uh, plays like to me. I, uh, I think it's a little bit different than that, but you know, not much. I thought it was a charming little film. Is it a great movie? No, but maybe after some of the other films in this stack, it felt like a breath of fresh air. Well, it's, you know, it's it's nineteen seventy six. Yeah. Uh, it's London. Uh, this kid called uh, called Shay, uh, played by Daniel Huttleston. Uh, his mother, who's living in a living in a squat slash commune in London, mother's uh, abandoned the family. Yeah, she's she's gone off to have sex with with various people. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's staying with his dad, who runs a piano store. Which actually becomes an important point. It does. There's, a, there's a very wily coyote moment in this film, which kind of made me laugh because I'm watching it. And I'm going like, somebody's getting a piano in the face, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, they, they just took a piano in the face. Yeah, that, that's um, Chekhov's piano up the stairs. Yeah, and it's. <laughs> um, but he, his mum sends him, and that's the thing. This is the first moment where I went, "Huh, this is this is mysteriously almost famous-ish because there's." Yes, he gets sent to this thing that he that he is supposed to listen to, and suddenly it expands his mind, like where, like because he know, meets a young girl who introduces him to punk rock. Yeah, yeah well, no, his mum sends him the tape. That's true, and it's she, like he, and it's the same thing. It's a it's a, a female thing in his girl. life running away, yeah. who hands him a tape with a song in the, in almost famous. It was listen to this listen to this record. Um, it's it's that moment again where he's like, oh, I hear this song, and suddenly I want to go off, and he you know. Go, decides to go see his mum and his dad's like oh I'm a taxi driver and stoic and solid and it's, and it's it's you know this kid getting introduced to punk and this kind of weird fictionalized story about him falling into Joe Strummer's orbit uh, and there is a point where Joe Strummer may as well have been stood on a slate roof going I am a golden god um, it's, it's every moment where something happens I'm like this feels so like almost famous yeah. That you kind of see why almost famous is actually in some ways quite a generic story, but it does the st- that generic story of you know young man caught up in the romance of a scene and kind of realizing there are limits to it and the, and the the rock star finally coming down to earth for a few moments just to just to help uh, and the kind of you know the romantic figure girlfriend is not as romantic as you thought and there's a limitation yeah. to everybody and there's a and it it really feels like that but set against. Punk in seventy six, yeah. and it's like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. I couldn't be moved by it. I kind of had it going because I, I, I did like, not make that comparison. But I haven't seen Almost Famous in years, and yeah. it really hasn't lingered in my mind. It wasn't a movie that made a 
it was a movie I enjoyed, but didn't make a huge impression on me back when I saw well, it. I, in the same way that Cinema Paradiso is, is um, you know, kind of has this moment of importance for you because when mm-hmm. you first came to it, um, people talk about Almost Famous as a really important music film. Mm. I think it's actually one of the best films about journalism you will ever see. I think it's that is so it, it, it's I, so spot on about you know that moment you know the, the to, whole late yeah. night conversations thing with Philip Seymour. Sure. To me, the big difference though is that the character of Shay in London calling London calling. Yeah, look at just me going, call it London, London calling because it's the weird thing yeah, they do I, get I rights know. to use um, a lot of Clash songs, but maybe they songs. didn't get to use that ta- that particular word, but. The, the purpose of the title well, the is that, there's no know. reason they couldn't have because uh, you can't you can't uh, copyright titles you can't protect titles in the same way because otherwise you'd run out of titles oh, that's uh, so there's actually so there's no reason it's like so well, there's nothing kind of stopping me from writing my coming of age story that I'm calling Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets uh, I can totally do that very, the, the law gets really weird in those places <laughs> as long as you're not deliberate as long as it's not a deliberate passing ah. uh, but you know there's no reason here because it would be an homage like you'd have much more leeway it just seems very weird that like I, I wonder if the clash went we don't want you to call it London Court yeah, that might be, they might have been just two on the nose but it would have more, more sense as a title for me, what's, what's different to me for me about this and Almost Famous was that Almost Famous is about the young kid who becomes embedded with that scene. Shay is a kid who stays at home. He's trying to take care of his family. He's trying to... His father's in hospital. His mother's abandoned the family. He's trying to make money. He's trying to keep the family shop going. Trying to take care of his little sister and stay one step ahead of the CPS, uh, the Child Protective Services, when, you know, Joe Strummer... As a kind, Joe Strummer's really treated here like a mythical figure. He's played by Jonathan Reese Myers, and uh, he's kind of a combination of like a punk rock Woody Guthrie meets Tom Joad, a sort of working man, people's poet sort of character. Either way, for me, that added just enough grit to see the problem the kid was having at home, trying to be resourceful without being miserable. It's not a miserableist tale. It's a fun little f- punk rock fairy tale. I didn't make the connection almost famous, but, you know, well, it was pleasant. The problem was that uh, uh, Jonathan Reese mayers is way too handsome to be Joe Strummer. Who and did. too old at this stage yeah, in his life. Yeah, I mean, uh, so that feels off. The, the actual, for me, the star player here was uh, Dubray Scott as the father. Yeah. Who actually, like, he takes that kind of, like, grumpy role... Which is again, and written, I thought, written very two dimensionally. I think two Scott did. Scott did great work. Yeah. Uh, talking of miserableist, oh, <laughs> but miserableist in the good way, in, in, in the classic way, um, in the uh, melodic way. Yeah. Deep, deep voice. We're giving you hints, people. Think of a singer with a real deep voice. Okay, now it yeah, sounds like a horrible. Uh, this episode. is Leonard Cohen. I'm your man. Um. It's a 2005 film that just came out on Blu-ray for the first time. Yeah, interesting re-release. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically what happened was that the Canadian government went, we want to do a tribute um, concert for, for Leonard Cohen, and we're going to get all these people to come in and do Leonard Cohen performances. Yeah. Uh, because 2005, he pretty much, you know, he'd given up live performance. Yeah, more he, or less. Yeah, he'd really gone, and, and in fact, I don't think he actually even appeared at that show. I think it really was just like a tribute. <laughs> I know, I mean, yeah. But this is this is fascinating because uh, what uh, director uh, Liam Lunson does is he intersperses uh, the the concert footage, mm-hmm. some of which is pretty good, some of which yeah. are like there are reasons why people shouldn't try and cover Leonard Cohen because some of this some of these versions do not work. Yeah, uh, some of them just really fall flat in the faces. Some of them, are, yeah, dear God, I mean, 
Hallelujah! Like Hallelujah is fascinating because it's a song that actually was done better by somebody else in the first place. Anyway, no, <laughs> you, know. you know, it's yeah, his version's good, but then you have the kind of you know, um, yeah, the, uh, the John Cale version. Yeah, where you got this, this yeah, the Cale version is like it. Yeah, so he's somebody who sometimes is a better songwriter for other people. Um, but it's intercut with uh, interview with Leonard Cohen talking yeah. about incidents in his life. It's not. Yeah. It's not a bio documentary in that not way. At all. And then you have people. Basically, going how wonderful he is. Yeah. Uh, there, uh, it sometimes verges on ridiculous, sure. like when Bono starts talking about doors. Okay, you just started. You just threw in Bono. <laughs> that was, that was, I mean, it just goes without saying. It's like everybody's saying something very nice and complimentary, and then Bono shows up, and you're like, "Oh my God, he's going to get florid and over the top." Because and, and that's what he does. But it's just, he literally starts talking about carpenters, and I'm like, you're an idiot. Yeah. You, sir, are a, are a fool who nobody can tell he's a fool. Uh, but, I mean, there's some really good stuff in here. Yeah. Nick Cave. Nick Cave is always Nick good. Nick Cave gushing. Like, oh, Cave, just were like... Talking about being this kid in some tiny little town in Australia, and he found a copy of I'm Your Man, and suddenly he's transported. Yeah, Beth, Beth Orton. Uh, Beth Orton. Does uh, great form as Jarvis Cocker. Jarvis, yeah, and this is... Yeah. This is I mean, here's... The Garagal sisters. Yeah. A few others. Here's the thing, and I know this is probably going to have a lot of people mad at me, and they're going to be going, oh, it's Richard being contrarian again. Hold on, let me go no, sharpen no. my knives. I... What are you going to say now, Richard? I like Leonard Cohen. I appreciate Leonard Cohen. I don't connect with Leonard Cohen. That's fair enough. Um, fair I enough. Am, you know, I, uh, he's a little too... You use the word florid. Sure. And I think that that's really... Because he's a poet. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's, a, a, he's a guy who actually genuinely started as a poet, and then is probably his songwriting career, I think, yeah. has overshadowed his life as a poet. Um, yeah, I compare that to, you know, Scott Walker. Scott Walker yeah. kills me. Scott Walker, yeah, Scott Walker just, just speaks to me directly. And that's no criticism yeah. uh, of Leonard Cohen. I just think this this is something where, if you are a Leonard Cohen fan, this is... Absolutely unmissable. You need Leonard this Cohen is a life. romantic, and Scott Walker is a nihilist. Yeah, <laughs> that's no, why that's, he speaks to you. That's why he speaks because inside you're really dead, Richard. We yes, all are. We all knew this. <laughs> In fact, one of my editors uh, recently, <laughs> I, I was joking with, well, quasi joking with him, uh, I, yeah, about the current administration, uh, and I said that yeah, the great thing about being a nihilist is that you're never really disappointed yeah. uh, by anything at all. Uh, I managed to like just like took about ten seconds and just looked at me and just went, "You were engineered for these times, weren't you?" So, but uh, like, you know, I like a cockroach. I find you know, you know I, I think this really is for you know, it, it, this is for musicologists yes. to to look at and go. Here's some really interesting stuff and Cohen talking about about the development uh, of some of these songs yeah, and, and his, it's not you know the death of his father sure. and. Um, his own little weird cosmology that he's invented because he's a strange cat. Sure. Uh, and then, you know, these, you know, his uh, relationship with Buddhism. And it's all really fascinating. And it's like, yeah. oh, I understand a little bit more about it. Am I going to run out and put this in the, the yeah. player every couple of hours? No, not at all. No, in it's... fact, the one thing I felt after watching this more than anything was I want to go listen to my Leonard Cohen albums. Because yes, you know. So you don't want to listen to you too. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I can. I don't <laughs> think that the only good part about the U two segment on here is that it's the only track on which Cohen himself performs. Yeah, 
And it's obviously not part of the concert. It was done separately. But this makes the really smart decision of not doing the standard biopic stuff of just sitting him in a corner and putting a camera on him. That you do have some footage, but then there's... It's kind of arty and perhaps a little self-indulgent. But ultimately where I come down on this is that if you are a Leonard Cohen fan, needless to say, you're going to want to watch this. Or if you're someone who's perhaps coming to Leonard Cohen for the first time, it might be a good little introduction, but I still think the best way to approach any artist is through the work directly. So uh, I, I'm kind of uh, in the same boat with you, and I'm not going to put it on every five minutes, but it was still worthwhile. Yeah. Um, it's something I had a lot more time for, and uh, moving away from uh, Maudlin Men, which has been the theme so far, um, is actually uh, Little Sister. Mm. Uh, which, Story about a maudlin woman. Yeah, which, which kind of... Um, you know, I picked up a little traction on the festival circuit last year. Uh, rather charming, uh, oddball little piece um, about uh, uh, Addison Timlin plays a uh, a nun in training who get to you know you're trying to work out exactly why she's gone off to, going off to be a nun. This mm-hmm. doesn't seem to make a lot of sense for her, um, and she gets a call from her mother, played by Ali Sheedy, saying that oh your brother is home, you have to come back. Well, it turns out her brother um, was as a veteran who's had basically all his facial features and ears and eyelids burnt off. Yeah, um, he's terribly disfigured. And she goes home to spend some time with him, um, and they kind of revert back to what they were in their teenage years yeah. when she was, you know, they were both, you know, goths. Yeah, and, jamming out to gore. And their parents are a pair were a pair of uh, you know swingerish hippies. And it, they immediately fall back into the same old tensions um, and the same the same old habits. And this is weirdly charming. Yeah. This is a really oddball, sweet little film. Sweet without being twee, which I think is a really yeah. fine line to balance. And yeah. I, I found this really, really engaging. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. But it also felt like... It felt like, frankly, a mumblecore film with better production values. Uh, the only problem I have with this film is that it's it's quirky to a fault. And quirky is that horrible word any reviewer uses when they've run out of adjectives. But I have to use it because I don't know what else... Because saying it's somewhat uh, eccentric to the point of contrivance is too lengthy. So quirky will have to do. It's one of those movies where every character, no matter how small they are, has some kind of strange, weird quirk to it. Uh, oh, look, there's the charming aunt and uncle. Oh, but they're really dealing pot and, you know, growing magic mushrooms in the garden. You know, the the best friend from high school, she's actually on the run because now she's some animal rights terrorist. Yeah. You know, every, you know the little nun is actually, you know got a hang, an upside-down cross hanging in her childhood bedroom and listens to black metal. It, everybody is so goddamn engineered to be kind of quirky. The mother has got an alcohol problem. Dad is, you know, clearly kind of clueless and vague. Oh, Keith, you Keith know, Poulsen he's sweet in is... It. is uh, but he's yeah. the one character who almost seemed like a normal dude. I'm like, you're not the weird guy here. You're just the sort of goofy, lovable, well, that, that, somewhat yeah, distant Yeah, the, the father is actually played by uh, uh, playwright P- um, uh, Peter Hedges, and he's rather wonderful. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, this I'm is, not saying I didn't like this movie. I'm not jumping all over it. I'm simply saying that I had I've kind of hit that point where where every character feels quirky, it starts to feel like 
a convention, one that's being overused. Yeah. And it's not making those characters feel unique or real. It's actually making them feel like the invention of a clever screenwriter. Yeah. And that kind of pulled me out of the movie. Oh, it's, it's, it's like, it's, I, no family likes Halloween this much, Richard. No family. I am holding my hand up and saying you are wrong. Um, you know, I, they play Halloween games as a family. We would. My wife, me and my wife definitely would. Yeah, but, but you, you're, not, you, you're not from here. You're not normal. You just find our American ways quaint and eccentric. Adorable, absolutely. Oh my yeah. God! They, that's where they put out the pumpkins. They're so cute when <laughs> they do so that. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean this isn't. This is no great shakes. No, uh, but I found this really pleasantly distracting. Uh, I agree which with after that. some some pretty mediocre stuff this week, I was I was pretty sure, happy yeah. for. But yeah, you know, and I think that's where London Town hit me. Yeah. Where you have that palate cleanser, where you're like, oh, thank God, something that I enjoyed. And it does have the rather fun recurrent thing of, of Barbara Crampton as the mother superior. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the uh, Addison Timberland uh, character... Actually, makes... she was the most realistically drawn yeah. character. Well, that's the thing. I think it's like you, you have this thing of, of this, this real world that's away from the, the craziness of the family. Uh, and her getting increasingly frustrated that her car isn't coming back. Right. She's like, oh, I'm going home for a couple of days, going to borrow your car. Yeah, but we need it back on Friday. Not going back on Friday. Moral Can of the story, never lend a nun your car. Yeah, never ne- never, lend, never lend your novice your, your, your uh, Peugeot. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I thought this was... this Who's was the director of this? Uh, talk amongst yourselves. Uh, it was... Oh, because, yeah. That's one of the interesting things about it. Uh, it's uh, Zach Clark. Yeah, and... I know that, you know, the Swanbergs put some money behind this film, and they talk, you know, he talks on the DVD a little bit in an interview with uh, Peter Travers, which, oh my God, I didn't realize how cloying Peter Travers is. to. Oh, say. yeah, no, I think that's... Oh, my goodness. But that's neither here nor there. I only mention it because I'm very curious to see what this guy does next, because I really like this film, even though I may not have liked it as much as Richard. I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of potential and talent in this guy, and I'm curious to see what he's got next coming out. Well, I mean, he edited uh, White Reindeer, which okay. uh, but I think he may have, did he direct White Reindeer as well. Hang on, talk amongst yourselves. I thought he was a purely a, a. I thought this was like his first feature. No, 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 because he directed White Reindeer as well, huh. uh, which I really like. Which is uh, a little darker. It's the same kind of uh, homecoming um, narrative, but I think it. it you know, I, I like what he's doing. Uh, and I, I think this is much more of a, a transitional piece for him, and okay. I really think he's heading into somewhere really. I, I agree with you. I think this is if you two or three films down the road, you're going to be going like, oh, Zach Clark is you know doing really fascinating stuff. He he has a feel almost kind of like a younger, like a young uh, Atom Egeyan. Like you, you can feel the pieces starting to come mm-hmm. together on on a pretty unique voice that is. While not, uh, while clear-eyed about human foibles, uh, is is very understanding of them. And yeah. I think that that's the real thing. Is like there's a, there's a there's a, this isn't your standard. Oh, you go home and then everybody goes and has a party in the barn yeah. afterwards. It's like you find ways to live with the ways you, that your family doesn't right. work. And I think that for me, I, I found a lot to to really like about this. Um, kind of. Almost contrary oh, to uh, oh God. our next title. God bless you, Vinegar Syndrome, uh, for your determination to do beautiful restorations of the weirdest low-level shit. Yeah. Um, this is a double bill of Blood Mania and Point Terror. Um, 
which are two films with, by uh, a guy called uh, Peter Carpenter, uh, who you know a little bit more about the. About I the did backstory. a little bit of research just because, because I was you curious. fell down this fucking rabbit hole. I fell down the rabbit hole. I said, "Who?" Be-? You know, sometimes you watch a movie and it's so bad, you just go eh, and you turn it off. Sometimes you watch a movie like this, which is so. I don't even want to say bad. It's so blandly competent, yet still somehow merges into bad that you just think, who the hell made this and why? More to the point, why did I sit through it? Peter Carpenter, who is this sort of blandly handsome, think of a svelter Tom Jones. Uh, yeah, this Tom Jones is pretty svelte when he started when back he got then. Well, I'm guessing it's the, the difference is I can imagine. I can't imagine Peter Carpenter now, but I can imagine Tom Jones now. Because Peter Carpenter died shortly after making this back-to-back double feature. He somehow persuaded enough people that he was going to be the next big leading man that they coughed up the cash to film these two competent but banal features starring him. And honestly, kids, if you see this cover... And I can't really describe it, but if you scroll down to the bottom and click on those links, you're going to see the covers for Blood Mania and Point of Terror. This is the greatest illustration ever of how exploitation films the posters. They promise more than they deliver. Because there's very little of any of this in the actual movie. There's very little blood. There's very little... There's no terror. Uh, There's a little bit of nudity here and there, but nothing you haven't seen in a Sears catalog. Uh, and it's the same plot. Oh, it's exactly I, the same plot. So, you know what? We can actually do two for one. We no. only have to talk about one movie, because they're really basically the same movie with slight variations. Peter Campbell is this caddish young man who decides that he needs to get some money to make his life right. So, what does he do? He kicks to the curve his loving, uh, uh, supportive girlfriend who throws himself onto uh, a much more uh, seductive, wily person who's got more money or more to the point, they have a figure in their lives, either a husband or a father, who is soon to expire. And then, of course, no surprise, he dies. They get the money and he thinks he's got it made. He's going to be, you know, he's going to have his own sugar mama. And then, of course, a mis- unbeknownst to anybody, there's another heiress who shows up to cl- take her claim and she is younger and more naive and has most of the money now. So the Peter Carpenter character immediately, on a dime, starts putting all of his focus on this new person, creating jealousy between all the women. By the way, every woman in this movie wants to have sex with Peter Carpenter. Always. It's written in the script. Always. As soon as they walk in, except for the one character who is pointedly described as being a lesbian. Other than that, every character in this movie with tits wants to fuck Peter Carpenter. And you know what? You could almost see why, because he's the only thing that kind of poses as charisma or charm in this movie, and God knows he has very little. Suffice it to say, it ends with a very brief spout of blood with a lot of softcore nudity sprinkled throughout and with some sunny California backgrounds. Honestly, this movie just falls between two stools for me. It's not bad enough to be good. It's not good enough to be interesting. It's not smart enough to be an effective noir it's not scary enough. It's not sexy enough. It it's not lurid enough. Okay, it's just characters, bland. Characters wander in and out yes, and disappear. Bland. You wonder where they go into and, and then you don't care. And the thing is, before we even began the review, Richard and I had talked about this movie already. And it's annoying me how much headspace I have afforded this stupid <laughs> pair of movies. 
But occasionally, you do find a, a movie that's just so odd that it, you, you can't get it out of your head. But do not, please, do not mistake that for a recommendation. There is absolutely no reason you need and to watch really these. What's really remarkable about this is that both, not only do they both have exactly the same plot, and both begin with pretty dreadful musical numbers, which yeah. are nothing to do with the rest of the film. Uh, the you know the posters make them look like they are horror films. Yeah, these are not. They're not. These are kind of low grade sleaze that don't they're commit soap to sleaze. opera plots. Um, they could almost be noir, but they're too dumb yeah, to be noir. Nothing about this works. No. These are. I mean, God bless you, Vinegar Syndrome, yet again for taking something from the bottom of the pile and giving it a little bit of credibility. But it, this didn't deserve it. it there, there are titles which are way more deserving of your time. And this one just wasn't it. I'm really sorry, but yeah, yeah, this is. I a... have to end with one thing. I just want to point out that one of the special features is the limited edition exclusive bonus DVD. That's right, kids. There's three fucking DVDs for this. A bonus DVD featuring alternate TV versions for both films. In fact, so basically, oh, my, wait, minus no. boobs. Featuring their much sought after alternative Who team. Who sought after these? Why? I mean, maybe sought, but sought out, however, you sought after, like somebody went. Oh, I wonder what this would be like without tits. I know where, I know they're around the house somewhere. Where did I put them? And you just get frustrated because yeah. you're trying to find them. That's the only reason there is nothing worthwhile about no. this. Uh, where much at, more worthwhile. Whereas, yes. Uh, oh, and again, um, actually, a twofer in a lot, which really we should probably should talk about. Uh, from the good people over at Synapse, uh, they have they've only sent us two of these. Yes, unfortunately, not supposedly the full, three. Not the full trifecta, but they have just put out uh, at midnight. I take your soul. This night, I uh, I possess. I'll possess your corpse and embodiment of evil. The first three of the Coffin Joe films. Now, if you guys do not know who Coffin Joe is, oh, buckle up, my sweet <laughs> ones. Um, it's not often we get to talk about a film where it wasn't just the you know the, the film is interesting or it has an important moment in cinema. This is literally, and Midnight I'll, I'll, I'll Take Your Soul is literally the first Brazilian horror film. Yes. Uh, it was made by a guy called... Uh, uh, Oh my! Apologies, my Brazilian Portuguese pronunciation. Well, I is, don't know. I don't speak Portuguese. Zeta Casal, aka Ains. Yeah, uh, aka Coffin Joe. Joe. Yes, Coffin Joe, who basically went. Nobody in in Brazil is making horror films. Uh, nobody knows how to. I'm going to make the first Brazilian horror film, and what he does is this full blown assault on the Brazilian mindset. The mixture of repression, uh, Catholicism, uh, macho culture, uh, the, the terror of the, of the police. The, you know, the, and he creates this character of Coffin Joe, who is the ultimate rebel at every level and is a scumbag who beats up women and they still come crawling back to him. Oh. Uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he's just this total indictment of the whole culture made flesh. And these are films about him basically going, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the uni- in anything beyond myself and my pleasures, and I believe that the only thing that's going to be good in the world is if I, is if 
you know, I have children and I can reshape the world in my image. And this is a recurrent theme right through the entire cycle. He's basically a Nietzschean Superman in a small rural Brazilian village. Yeah. And these things are bonkers and sinister and crazy and completely free of the rules because he didn't know what the rules were. Yeah. So he just goes, I'm going to make these films by myself. He didn't have no effects budget. So there were... Uh, you know, the first film in the cycle has one of the most innovative ghost effects you will ever see. <laughs> it, you, you either think it looks wonderful or you hate it. Yeah. Um, but these, are, I mean, for me, it's very hard to think of more important parts of world cinema. Because this really tells South America, you can be truly subversive. Mm-hmm. So much starts with this. And so many people start going, you know, where do I where do I go from here? And I, I've talked to some Brazilian filmmakers who just you know, I go, well, what were your influences? They say, well, it's the Americans, it's the big ones from the states, blah 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 blah. And Coffin Joe, Coffin Joe is a homegrown institution. Opened the door. Yeah, uh, you know these are the first. Of the, you know this night opens at your corpse. It's black and white. It's a little rough in places. Even the restoration is a little sure. rough in places. But you know he was yeah you know, he was working. It was on shot nothing. cheaply. It was shot cheaply. Uh, with people who didn't necessarily know what they're doing, but yeah. there's just this real sense of grime and horror uh, and, and darkness that pervades the entire thing, uh, and that you know that uh, nothing makes sense in these films. Yeah. They're not super coherent, but the mood is so goddamn perfect yeah. in I, all of them. And, and I want to be careful here, Richard, because I think you're, I think you're absolutely right on everything you said. But there is the danger of overselling this. I think one of the things you have to come to with Coffin Joe, as you have to come to any piece of classic cinema, anything that was made sort of outside any kind of system, is this is one of those movies where a lot of people I hear like it, but I kind of get a sense that they enjoy it ironically or they're laughing at it. And I know you're not. Yeah. But I think that is the wrong way to watch this. Oh, no, these are... Uh, you know, you, you could laugh at this, but this is not an Ed Wood double feature. No. Coffin Joe is coming at this with something a lot more subversive. And to me, I kind of had a different reading on this because, I, obviously, I don't know what it was like to live in Brazil in the 1960s. However, I do know what it's like to live in a very uh, Catholic Latino neighborhood in South Texas... And while that's not a direct analogy, I couldn't help. Uh, for me, it was the Catholicism and the sort of heretical, sort of blasphemous attitude of Coffin Joe that kind of makes you go, holy shit, I can't believe he just said or did that. Now, for someone like me, that has an impact. And for a Brazilian in 1960, it would have had an impact. Now, if the first thing you see Coffin Joe do in any in film history, the first moment with Coffin Joe is he walks into his house, yells at his wife, and says, "Woman, make me some. I want some meat because he's going to go eat meat in front of a passing funeral procession on a Friday." I know you're thinking so, but in Catholic culture, eating meat on Friday that was like spitting in the face of God. You yeah. were breaking the rules. If you don't have that context, you might be sitting there going. What the fuck do I care why yeah. some creepy guy in a top hat is eating a joint of mud and looking the, at a funeral these are, procession? These are, these are absolutely of their time. You have to look at it through that lens or else you're going to find it kind of silly. Uh, even st- even for me, I found moments where I was like, 
you know, Coffin Joe just is belligerent. He belittles all the neighbors. He beats the hell out of anybody. Everybody cowers before him. They're terrified of him. And to me, I keep thinking, you know, if this were in my dad's old neighborhood, Coffin Joe, the movie would have lasted about, you know, within the first two minutes, Coffin Joe would have been in traction in a hospital. And the rest of the movie would be people in the neighborhood going, Coffin Joe, never heard of him. Who? Oh, you mean the guy who fell on the curb over and over? To me, well, I'm what, like, why don't these people just beat the shit out of him? But well, I think it's, a, it's, it's Marine's sort of fantasy that Coffin Joe is so potent and so terrifying that everyone cowers before him. There is a fantasy element in oh, this. Yeah. It's, just, it's, a, it's a wish fulfillment fantasy. Yeah. That's part of its darkness. I mean, they are, they are political allegories. And political allegory as well. Which I, you know, is what, what works about them. And I, I, you know, I, I just find these so refreshing. And I can go back to them time yeah. and time again and really feel like, you know, this is, this is something I, I, I miss. do wish that Merrins had not done any of the special, the new special features on this edition. Cause I don't think they serve him well. You know, Coffin Joe cavorting like a midnight movie TV show host, you know, and draping himself over young women who are old or young enough to be his granddaughter. Just feels creepy and gross. Well, and it's funny because... It the, works when he was in his 30s. In the more recent films, because uh, he's come back and done these... You know, he's he's yeah. continued the cycle throughout his life. He keeps going back to this character. Uh, you know, he's done... You know, the, you know that he becomes this, this figure committed to his own myth. And that's mm-hmm. what's really fascinating, because this is both an attack on... Uh, these, are, these are an attack on Brazilian culture, but they're also an attack on the kind of person who hasn't, who keeps trying to subvert Brazilian culture. This is the, you know, the whole thing is a, you know, everybody's an offender approach. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I truly, truly. I do. also did find something oddly kind of regressive about it because you have to understand everybody in this town accuses Coffin Joe of being in league with the devil. He's Satan. And Coffin Joe is always very quick to tell everybody, no, I don't believe in anything. Yeah. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the devil. I only believe in myself. You know, none of that stuff means anything to me. And yet, each film, he is brought down by his hubris. Each film, he gets his comeuppance through supernatural means. And just in time for him to get healed up by the second film. And, of course, he has forgotten all of those lessons. But never is that more potent in the second film, Tonight, I'll Steal Your Corpse, where Coffin Joe, in a rare moment of sort of repressed guilt, has a bad dream. No, no. Uh, so, uh, the, the second one is not, uh, not uh, this not oh, wait, no, sorry. Corpse. Yes. <laughs> My apologies. Easily confused. Easily confused. The naming conventions weren't all that novel after a while. Uh, but no, there's a great moment that we need to talk about in the second film. It is the only moment in these two films that appears in color. And it is basically Coffin Joe goes to hell. It's basically Co- Coffin Joe goes, ooh, this Roger Corman shit's pretty good. Yeah. It's, it's, I te- like this Bava lighting. It's technical madness and it's, it's glorious. It's worth the price of admission. But I do find that interesting that this character who claims to believe nothing, who represents the man who believes in nothing, still is having enough guilt that he's going to end up going to this sort of conventional type hell. But enough talk about Coffin Joe. It's a movie that you guys should definitely go check out. At least watch the first one. The second one, I think, is actually better. Yeah. But if you get through the first one, the first one's essential. And the second one, it will just... uh, These are the only two Coffin Joe films I've seen. I've seen the first one before. This is the first time watching the second. 
And now that's another rabbit hole I wonder if I'm oh, going to yeah, go yeah. down. You, you really need to. There was such a really good uh, box set, which, which was put out in a coffin-shaped box set a few years ago, which I do recommend searching down. If you can find it, get that. Mm. If you can't, then definitely go with these. Because okay. uh, these are good re-releases. They, yeah. they make Beautiful covers, too. Oh, yeah. They, every, you know, they, these, these, it, it's not going to look much better than Synapse this. Synapse did a really good job They did this. a stellar, stellar job. Okay, well, now, um, in fact, moving to our last title, and yet another, like... Another three big for... pack. Yeah. Um, which, you know, and, and this is my pick of the week, i got to say, because yeah. for, for multiple reasons, I think, you know, while I could make, you know, while there's connections to various different films going on, Personally, that we both have, but I really feel that this is this is pretty spectacular. Uh, this is uh, Arrow has done uh, Takeshi Miike's Black Triad trilogy, aka the Black Society trilogy, mm-hmm. and that's they've released it as the as the Black Society trilogy. Uh, this is actually three unrelated films. Oh yeah, there, um, 1995's uh, Shinjuku Triad Society, 1997's Rainy Dog, and 1999's Ley Lines. Uh, and these are basically all just, uh, they're gangster movies. Yeah. Um, but this is, they're, this is kind of nascent, um, Takeshi Miike. Uh, this is him still relatively early in his career, uh, starting to really put the pieces together. Uh, you know, when he, I mean, he, this is a point where he is incredibly, Incredibly productive. Yeah, I think he yeah. made these three movies in like two years. Uh, he made these in he made these in four years. Okay, uh, but, but there were 19, a lot of other movies in, in 1995 alone. He released three films: Daisen no Gokudo, Shuro no Mokoro Shiroku Two, Osaka Tough Guys, which for a lot of people I think was one of the first things they really knew about, and Shinjuku Triad Society. Yeah, you know, this yeah you know, this is a point where he is really just blazing through and doing amazing work uh, you know we, we're a few years away from uh, you know really starting to really hit uh, the the great strides of the UK but you can feel you know I mean we're, we're two years away from Visitor Q and Itchy the Killer and Happens to the Categories you know like you know he's uh, you know really starting to, to find his voice as a director in these and his raw hatred <laughs> of Japan. Uh, what's really fascinating in a lot of ways is that, uh, you know, he uses these films to talk about one of the more complicated and in some ways taboo areas of Japanese culture, which is the relationship with China. Yeah. Now, we've talked enough about how Chinese films uh, basically all treat Japanese uh, characters as uh, racial stereotypes, yeah. and this is an issue that's come up repeatedly oh, yeah. here on Digital Noise. Um, but this it is... It wouldn't be a Chinese film review without bringing it up. Oh, yeah. Uh, but this is very dark take. This uh, is really the only... Th- it, obviously, the trilogy, that, that word is used very loosely. You're right that they are all gangster films, but it really is that subtext about the relationship between Japanese and Chinese, and also those of mixed heritage who don't really fit into either culture, that really thematically links all three of these films. Uh, the first film involves, you know, fights between a, a mixed race uh, detective and the various uh, triad and Japanese Yakuza gangs. The second film involves a Japanese Yakuza who has been exiled to Taipei, 
where he is suddenly, where he is sort of the exotic foreigner surrounded by Chinese. And then in the third film, you have ley lines, Japanese uh, who are of Chinese descent, who are treated as country bumpkins, who go to the city and fall into a life of crime and then try to escape back to the country. So that Chinese-Japanese tension is really the thread that goes through all three of these movies and really makes some interesting uh, storylines. I think that coming to these films for the first time myself, I had a, a preconception of what a Mike film is going to be like, which is always kind of a dangerous thing to do. The first one, Shinjuku Triad Society, that one probably feels the most like a Mike film. Yeah. You've got, you know, you know, homosexual gangsters, you have anal rape as a way of prison interrogation. You've got drugs. Well, You've got bizarre what's really, stuff. What's really fascinating about that is when you, when you get to that scene, um, it's you. You realize halfway through, it's like, oh, this isn't necessarily anal rape as interrogation. This is is this bribery? And that scene is very uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. And very weird. And you, know, you, you know, kind of looking at it going like, this is. That, that, the I mean, thing that is, we one... also see a young woman also being shaken down by the cops as well oh, yeah. and treated horribly. The cops horribly are not way. pleasant to this. They are yeah. not And, and they're all right. basically painted as just another gang, basically. Yeah. But my point is that that first film is, like you said, it's uncomfortable. It's sort of bombastic. It's crazy. It's over the top at times. And I thought, yes, of course, this is a Mike film, which is why it was such a surprise when I got to Rainy Dog, which has... A few of those elements, it's not without sex and violence, but it's a much quieter, it's a much slower moving film, and it's got a little bit more heart. In many ways, it's more conventional and tropey, so it would be... A, Rainy Dog is almost, it's you know, almost a character study. It, it really is, even though some of these characters are really weird, and like in some Mikkei films, you have characters who show up and you go, this character makes no sense, uh, specifically like the... Uh, the character who is, like, trying to kill the, the lead of Rainy Dog. We never really know why he's trying to kill him. All we know is he's supposed to kill him. But he never seems to be able to do it. And yet, in the middle of beating the shit out of one another, they can stop and go, you want to go get lunch? Yeah, let's go have lunch. And then go back to get beating the shit out of each other. Well, they're pros. It's a weird kind of movie that way. And then Ley Lines is kind of in between those two in terms of its excessiveness. Uh, there's a horrific scene uh, in Ley Lines involving a, uh, a prostitute and a John with a speculum and other implements, uh, all shot with a really horrible POV that will haunt your dreams. Again, Mike is not for the light of heart, but I never feel like he's going... At his best, he's not going just for shock value. No. There's something else going on. There's a discomfort there, and it's very much intentional. It very much wants you to be uncomfortable. But ultimately, they're actually rather... Once you strip out those sort of outre elements, it's actually... They're pretty conventional gangster films. And the one thing I found interesting, the name of the man escapes me. Uh, there's a gentleman who uh, provides commentary on all three of these films. He's very knowledgeable about Mike. Certainly helped me uh, kind of navigate these films on the second watching. And one thing I found interesting, uh, and you know this, Richard, uh, is that Mike comes out of this thing called V-Cinema, you know, where they're basically, these are direct-to-video movies. Yeah. 
and he's cranking them out super cheaply. But the one company that he was working with, they had this thing where they would allow for a limited screening. So a 35 millimeter answer print was made. And it may get one screening in one theater in one province for one week, but it got a screening. The upshot of that was that they now had a 35mm exhibition print, which could then go and play film festivals in Europe. So these three films are really kind of where Mikkei's begins to get exposed to the West, where they really start to discover that there's something going on. And there's probably just as many crazy filmmakers that came out of that V-Cinema who didn't get that privilege, but Mikkei did, and now look where he's at. You know, it, it's a really important part of his career. I think these are three really good movies. You got to have a, a, you know, a, a tough stomach to watch some of them. But uh, once you kind of view it through that lens of the Japanese-Chinese relationship, their relationship to one another as a film, as a trilogy, really comes together. Yeah, I, th- I think these are you extraordinary know. pieces of cinema. I mean, they. Yeah. they I think particularly if you've never seen any Mike, you know, this these may not be the obvious ones in a lot of ways to start with, but I think they're almost a good introduction yeah. because you're not because a lot of people are gonna go, Oh, you gotta watch Itchy the Killer. Right. Uh and it's like you do not necessarily need yeah. to leap straight into Itchy the Killer. Yeah. Uh there are elements here that are, are where he will end up. Yeah. But it's very much the beginning of his kind of, you know, his radicalization as a filmmaker. And I think these are really, really fascinating to watch. And I think if you're a Mikkei fan, these are probably films that you you won't have seen. I mean, particularly Ley Lines is relatively obscure. I think a lot of pe- more people have watched yeah. um, uh, Shinjuku the, and you know, Rainy Dog is kind of in there, but Ley Lines is relatively obscure, I think because it is a little bit more off the beaten track yeah. for him as a as a piece. And I think that you know, these are ones you're going to want to leap into. Yeah. Uh, it's, this is a beautiful restoration in all three. I mean, it's like, it keeps the grime. Because it is, it is, it is, they were shot 16 millimeter. Oh, yeah. Really. They were never designed to be seen on an HD screen. No. But they, even on that cheap budget with that cheap film stock, you realize how good an eye this guy has. Oh, yeah. I mean, the attention for color and lighting. Yeah, and there's a couple of fight sequences that you watch and you just go, this guy understands how to make these things feel brutal and there's moments where you can really also feel how he's fighting against the v cinema uh, tropes mm-hmm. uh because there's a couple of moments where you go those are classic shaw brothers martial arts noises that are being played it's the old leather slap machine mm-hmm. uh is being intruded into something which is just a, a visceral fight that it shouldn't have that so you can feel still there's those influences of a produ- where he's still got a producer over his shoulder going like we've got to mitigate some of what you're doing, but this is the first flowering of a, of you know arguably you know one of the three you know, well inarguably uh, one of the three three or four most important directors of Japan in the last forty years arguably the most important um, and I, th- I think that this is this is an unmissable box set and this is this is Absolutely. my this is my pick of the week yeah. just because I think you're looking at uh, a moment of catching an auteur at a really significant transition point. It's it's like find you know it, it's like getting a box set of early Spielberg and somebody remembered to put um, the TV version Duel. of Duel yeah. and Sugarland Express in there, so you can go, oh, that's really who he was. That, yeah. Oh, right, there's those components that I, I see coming together later. So I, I think this is this yeah. is a must have. Well. I think we got through we, them all. We reached the end. Uh, yeah, thank you so much as hey. always, Marcus. It's been a pleasure. Um, 
as always, uh, thank you again for listening in. Uh, don't forget, you want to buy any of these titles, just click down at the bottom, take you straight to Amazon, you can buy them all from there. Um, you can uh, you know, catch us everywhere else on uh, the One of Us Network. Uh, keep tuning in this month as we have lots of updates from South by Southwest, along with all our regular podcast content. Uh, you can follow me uh, on Twitter at YorkshireTX. You can follow me at your own peril. Uh, 